Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. I feel like I'm going camping this morning carrying all this stuff up on the stage. (laughs) How's everyone? You guys good? Good. My name is uh, Paul Joslin, and I'm one of the uh, pastors on staff here. Excited to continue our series uh, in the parables and teaching of Jesus. Um, man, I would like feel weirdly nervous because what I'm about to say, I just feel like it's kind of vulnerable. Um, but as a kid, uh, I was kind of a bully and a violent child. And that, um, how's that for an opener, right? Like we're just getting straight into it. Um, yeah, I don't know, honestly, uh, I've wrestled through this. I've done counseling, but I, I don't know if it was like nurture in my environment that kind of like broke that part of me or if it was just uh, nature and there was something broken within me, but I tended towards a lot of violence, got in fights with people all the time. Um, kids, and it's not like I was like some gangbanger. I lived in the suburbs. I just fought with people all the time. I was angry as a kid and, and just uh, got into a lot of physical altercations. Um, and it's this part of my like, childhood and teen years that I'm not quite sure what to always do with. One example uh, is I was playing pickup football, tackle football in our neighborhood with a group of guys. And it was one of those games where the tackling just kept escalating and getting harder and harder and harder. And people got angrier and angrier and angrier. And we weren't really playing football anymore. We were just trying to hurt one another. And um, this kid, Ryan Kreitz, uh, I don't think I'll ever forget his face, but he happened to tackle my younger brother. Um, which I thought was like maybe a little too hard. Uh, And so I got really angry at him. Next chance I got, I speared this kid um, and tackled him to the ground, put him in the dirt, and then kind of went, not kind of, went way too far. I I punched him. Um, Yeah, that's, yeah. Oh, wow, the pastor, he went there. Um, (laughs) And then to make matters worse, I picked up the football that he had been carrying, and from about a foot and a half away, I threw it as hard as I could in his face and just busted up his whole face. Um, Larry's mom, if you're watching, please still love me. Like, don't. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I was always ready for a fight. I mean, if someone said something that rubbed me the wrong way, if someone did something that I didn't like, I was always ready uh, to to get into an altercation. And and as I've grown and matured, thankfully, you know, that stuff has has maybe been put in my past, Um, but I'm still the person who's like always ready with like a quip if someone says something, and I'm ready to hurt you with my words. And I'm sure none of you ever do this, but I'll like get into fights with people in my head, right? And yeah, it's a pastor, he's saying it, you can say it. But I'll just like get in these arguments with people. Um, And if someone wounds me or hurts someone I love, and I'm just like thinking through all the ways that I would get back at them and all the things I would say. And I think the question is, what is the proper response when someone hurts you? When someone hurts someone you love, what do we do in those situations? And I think all of us would probably agree you shouldn't chuck a football at their head. Um, That's not appropriate. I'm just trying to cut the tension and the vulnerability I'm feeling a little bit there. (laughs) 
But what is the proper response? And Jesus' disciples had a similar question. It's a group of people who are living under Roman occupation and oppression. Their enemies were everywhere. And Jesus shows up on the scene teaching things like forgive and love your enemies and turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. And they're, they're kind of sitting there wondering like, okay, Jesus, but like how far do we actually have to go with the people who have harmed, injured, and wounded us? And so that's kind of the setup for the parable today is that Peter comes to Jesus and he asks him basically this question, how far do we have to go? And the story starts out in chapter 18. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And at this point, Peter thinks he is like going the extra mile because rabbinical law at the time said that if someone has harmed you, you should forgive them up to three times. And then after the third time, you can kind of just let them go on their own way. You don't have to forgive them anymore. In fact, you could maybe even take retribution if you need to. And so he's, go, he's more than doubling that, saying seven times, God, is that, Jesus, is that enough? But Jesus answered him, I tell you, not seven times but 77 times, which feels like just a random number that's thrown out. But it's really this idea of what we would maybe call infinity. It's limitless. There's no bounds to the amount of forgiveness Jesus is telling his people that they need to exhibit and demonstrate. And you have to stop and you have to think about like some of the worst wounds in your life. The, the people who have harmed you the most. And Jesus is saying that that person is someone you need to forgive up to 77 times. This kind of perfect number, this, this infinite, limitless number. And you have to pause and think, really? Like that person? That enemy who's harmed and hurt me? The, the person that I have been hanging on to wounds in my life from the things that they've said or done to me, that's the person that I'm supposed to forgive. And, and there's no limit to the amount you are calling me to forgive. It's a hard teaching. And so Jesus, in order to kind of explain what he means, tells a parable. And you'll remember the, the point of the parable is not just to give us some kind of moral fable or for, to help us understand some like moral truth or even a, a theological truth. The, the intention of parables, I talked about this a few weeks ago, but they really have three intentions or purposes. And the first one is this, that parables are intended to reveal the nature of God's kingdom to us. They show us what God's kingdom is like, how it comes about, what God is doing in the world through his kingdom. And secondly, they also reveal to us the nature of the king, the values of God's kingdom. See, Jesus was going around and doing all of these things that people didn't quite understand and didn't expect. And the way that he was interacting with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and people were like, this doesn't seem like how we expected the kingdom of God to come. And, and so parables are stories that help us understand the ethic and value of Jesus so that then we can apply that to our own lives. And then finally, parables, they create a kingdom crisis within us, a, a point where we have to decide, is this the kind of kingdom that we want to be a part of? Is this the kind of king that we want to follow? 
And so I'm going to keep coming back to those three things throughout the series because they've been a helpful framework for me of understanding parables and working through these confusing stories that sometimes leave me scratching my head like, Jesus, what were you getting at? And as we tell the story today, I'd love if you would be thinking through, okay, what is this trying to say about the nature of God's kingdom? What does this reveal about the values and ethics and character of the king? And where does this apply to my own life? And so Jesus, he starts this story to try to explain this really difficult teaching. You have to forgive people up to 77 times. And he says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, for context, this kind of scenario is actually not that far-fetched. In that day, there were a lot of servants who were kind of operated as debt collectors for kings and lords and people who had a lot of people under them. And so likely this scenario is that this king has someone, this servant, who has a lot of debt, but this debt of 10,000 bags of gold is probably not just his own. It's all the people who are under him in the pyramid scheme. It's farmers, it's workers, it's craftsmen who have he has lent money to in the name of the king. And so this has accumulated this huge amount of debt. And the king's saying, okay, it's time to pay up. And this man is like, I don't have it. I, I haven't been able to collect it from all of these people. And, and it makes sense that he hasn't been able to connect it because the amount we're talking about, I mean, it's an astronomical number. It is in the billions of dollars. 10,000 bags of gold, just for context, was when Pompey took over Israel, uh, the entire nation owed him 10,000 bags of gold in taxes, and they struggled to come up with that amount. I mean, it's just a huge number that Jesus is dealing with here. And it's in the billions of dollars in today's reference. And just to kind of give you some math of what we're talking about, in that day, one bag of gold, or, or some of your translations may say one talent, would be about 6,000 denarius, which is the day's wages at the time. And so if you do the math on that, this servant is roughly owing the king 60 million denarius. Which means that if he were to try to pay back this debt, it would take him 164,000 years at a day's wages. I mean, there's no way. In any world, like literally not in a million years, would he be able to pay back the debt that he owes to this king? I mean, it's just an incredible number. And yet he begs for forgiveness. And he says, would you please just, like, I'll repay it. Would you just be patient and merciful and kind to me? And the king does something unthinkable. He forgives the debt. And there's an interesting detail where Jesus says in the story that the king took pity on him. And it's a word that you might be familiar with because I think Larry's talked about it quite a bit, but it's the, the word splachna. Can everyone say splachna? It's such a great word. You're not going to remember it, but it's just a fun word to say. 
But it's like the seed of compassion and tenderness. It's the word we see Jesus use over and over again when he sees the crowds of people. It tells us that he took pity on them. And so right away in the story, we see a link between this king and the mercy he shows and the heart of Jesus and how he has interacted with the sinners and tax collectors and the people of Israel who are like a sheep without a shepherd, longing for someone to take care of them. And so he takes mercy on the servant, he listens to his plea, and he forgives the debt. But, but it's even better than it seems on the surface, because what is happening in this story is that when the king forgives this servant's debt, in effect, he's, he's creating this like financial amnesty. Everyone who owes this servant money, their debt has been forgiven too, all the way down the pyramid. Like everybody's debt has just been wiped off the books because of this man's plea. It's an incredible act of mercy and grace and forgiveness. The king just cancels all of the debt, which makes the the servant's next move even more puzzling, because this is how Jesus continues the story of the unmerciful servant. He says, but when the servant who had just been forgiven all that debt went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, which is essentially like a hundred days wages. I mean, it's it's like if you bought dinner for someone and we're like, hey, can you just make sure to Venmo me back for like that burger and fries that I bought you? And instead, he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. It's the exact same plea. It's the exact same request that the unmerciful servant had just given to the king. But where mercy had been given, this servant refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. How many of you feel like the other servants in the story? Like you just even listening to the story, hearing how this person has been forgiven this astronomical amount of debt and then tries to shake someone down for 20 bucks and you're like, oh my gosh, that just like, it gets your blood boiling. You're so angry. Like you want justice against this person. Anyone get in that space? Like you start thinking about the people who have hurt or wronged or what they've done and you're like, oh, those are just, I, I can't stand those kinds of people. And the servants in the story are angry because they see what's happened. But it's actually worse than on the surface because remember, not only has the the unmerciful servant been forgiven, but all the debt that he was supposed to collect has been forgiven. And so where the unmerciful servant is supposed to be going out and proclaiming the good news that all debt has been forgiven, instead he tries to collect it. And instead of proclaiming the good news that, hey, my debt's been forgiven, your debt's been forgiven, we're all free. Instead, he chooses to commit violence, throw this man in prison, and collect what he wants. I mean, it's almost cartoonish how evil this would have to be. Like a person, like it's not lost on us, just the irony of having this astronomical amount of debt forgiven to then come back and demand your pound of flesh from from someone at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. And so the 
the people who see this, they're, they're outraged, and they go and tell the king. And then Jesus concludes the story this way. Then the master, the king, called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. Now, pause. Now, all of you who, who like me, read about the unmerciful servant and felt the anger, the animosity, the, the need for vengeance, the, the desire for justice to reign. How many of you read that part and like, whoa, that maybe feels a little bit much. Like he, he just got thrown in prison and now you're torturing him? Like ah, maybe wasn't just prison enough? Like do we actually have to go all the way to torture? Like I think we all agree torture is like not good, right? Like that's not like on the moral side of good. It feels a little incongruent, especially when you start thinking about, like, the king being compared to God. Like, God is a, for torturing people? Like, what is Jesus doing in this story? Well, it gets even more difficult because it's how Jesus concludes this entire parable. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, I'm not going to lie, as I've read this passage beginning a couple of months ago and sat with it, every time I come to that line, it, it kind of stops me and gives me pause. Because suddenly the story is not just about injustice. It's not just about someone who's mistreated another person. Suddenly it's about me. Suddenly I'm the person who has to wrestle with, am I willing to forgive? Because what Jesus says is, is if I treat other people the way that this unmerciful servant has treated others, then that's how the Heavenly Father will respond to me. And that's unsettling. That feels uncomfortable. That feels like something I'm not quite sure what to do with. Because when I think of the people who have hurt me or harmed me or harmed the people I love, I'm not sure that I'm just willing to, to offer them the good news of forgiveness and the cancellation of debt. There, there are people that I'd rather hang on to my grudges and my frustrations. And so in this story, we see this, this truth that I think Jesus is pointing us to, that, that's intended to, to provoke and to shock us towards the truth. When we read about the king throwing the person in jail to be tortured, we've got to be careful in the parables not to allegorize every single situation. I don't think what this parable is saying is that this is the nature of judgment for those who reject the ways of God or who don't forgive people, and this is what your reality will be. I think instead it's a, it's a deeper truth that, that judgment will come for those who have rejected this teaching. I don't, I don't think it's intended to show us the nature of judgment. And I think what's a thing to wrestle with in this story is that it seems like in the story about God's limitless forgiveness, there are limits to God's forgiveness. But in this parable, Jesus seems to tell us that God's forgiveness and the necessary limits around it are, are perhaps not the limits that God himself has set, but the limits we set for ourselves. 
See, what we see in the unforgiving servant is someone who brings judgment on himself by treating his own forgiveness as a license to judge other people. And the question is, have we done that? The spaces where we've experienced the mercy and grace of God, do we then turn God into a vengeful king instead of a merciful one? Do we go out proclaiming the good news that we've all been forgiven, all debt has been canceled, or instead do we go to the places where we demand people repay what they owe us? So what do we do with this parable? What does it reveal about the nature of God's kingdom? What does it reveal to us about the the nature and character of the king? Well, I I think in the first section, we see a really clear example that that the nature of God's kingdom, God's kingdom is the place that reveals to us the extravagant and lavishly abundant mercy of God. The focus on this story seems to be on the character of, of the merciful king as a a kind of way for us to see and illustrate for us the mercy and grace of God, the the debt that we could never repay, the, the debt that we have no way to ever pay God back for, the sins, the harms, the things that we've done wrong, the ways we've wounded other people that God is is completely willing and generous to forgive all of it. Our worst moments, the the moments that we wish we could have back, the, the moments that we wish we could hide and never have to share with anyone else. To be honest with you, almost every time I pick up a football to play catch, I think of that moment with that kid. It's that moment of shame that just clings to me. That I feel the guilt and the shame of why did I do that? Why did I respond in that way? And it pops up at the most random time. I'm watching the Dallas Cowboys lose on Thanksgiving, and I think about that moment. And I'm sure you have those moments too. The moments you wish you could have back. The moments that are the worst moments of your life. The ones that you want no one to know about. See, the beauty of this story is it's not just some, like, abstract story. It's actually the ethic that Jesus lived and breathed when he was among us. I think of the story of the, the woman caught in adultery. If you remember that story, it's a woman who literally a priest happens to come upon her while she's in the bed of her lover and grabs her by the fistful of hair, drags her into the streets, throws her at the feet of Jesus, cheek in the dirt on the temple steps, and says, the law says stone her. Death penalty, what do you say? The worst moment of her life. The thing that she had been hiding from everyone suddenly available for all to see. And Jesus pauses in the moment and doesn't even respond to the question. He just kneels down and begins drawing in the dirt with his finger. And you have to imagine the woman just thinking like, what, what is happening? What's about to happen to me? What does it feel like when people start throwing stones? Like, what is going on? And then Jesus' words cut the silence and he says, go ahead, stone her. But only you who's without sin can throw the first stone. 
And suddenly the woman hears all these stones begin to just drop on the sand as people walk away. And Jesus picks her up and dusts her off and looks her in the eyes and says, neither do I condemn you. Leave your life of sin. See, these parables that we have of the extravagant and lavish grace of God are not just some abstract story to make us feel better about ourselves. They're the way that that Jesus actually interacted with sinners and tax collectors. We see Jesus encounter people in the worst moments of their lives. And instead of allowing them to hide in the weight of their shame, he offers them freedom and forgiveness and the cancellation of all debt. See, I think in this story, that's what we see from Jesus, is that he's willing to pardon our worst moments, to forgive us of the places and the things we've done that cover us in shame and cancel all debt. And that there is no accumulation of wrongdoings that you can have. There's no amount that you can incur against yourself that Jesus is not willing to forgive. But the first section of the parable shows us the extravagance of God's mercy. And the second part of the the parable shows us that that there's an expectation that comes with receiving that type of forgiveness. And and the unmerciful servant in that space, he actually serves as more of a foil to the value of the kingdom of God. Because I think what Jesus is getting at in this parable is that one of the values of the kingdom of God, of, of God's people, one of the things that Jesus exhibits to the world is that forgiven people forgive people. And that when you've experienced the grace and mercy of God, there's an expectation that you declare the good news that all debt has been forgiven in the name of Jesus. And that you let go of the grudges and the things that hold you back from loving others in this way. That the people who have harmed and hurt you, that you wish you could seek vengeance against, it's the way of the kingdom is to offer forgiveness instead of vengeance. Jesus actually talks about this in several different places. Some of his his biggest speeches, like the Sermon on the Mount, or teaching us the Lord's Prayer, deal with this kind of ethic. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. You see the correlation The people of God are the people who have experienced the extravagant, lavish grace and mercy of God and then show that to the world. I love the way that Ronald Rollheiser puts it. He says, God is abundant. He's talking about God's mercy. God is abundant, generous, and wasteful beyond all our small fears and imaginations. And that invites us to be generous when we have a sense of God's abundance. We can risk having a bigger heart and a generosity beyond the instinctual fear that has us believe we need to be more calculating. Do you ever find yourself in that space where you feel like maybe you need to forgive someone, but you feel like, well, have they actually earned it? Do they actually deserve my forgiveness? I need to be a little protective with who I offer my forgiveness to. 
You see, there's an interesting story at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 4 that I think Jesus is actually calling on in this parable that I think helps give us a little bit of an insight into what Jesus is talking about. So if you think back to the, to the beginning in Genesis, you have Adam and Eve, they're, they're placed in the garden, they're given everything they need, they rebel against God, and so God expels them from the garden. The next story we see is of Cain and Abel, their son. And Abel earns God's favor through the way that he gifts his offerings to God and the way he's built his relationship with God. And and Cain grows jealous of Abel to the point where he takes his life, God approaches him and says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries against me. And we see this progression of evil. People have been expelled from the garden. Then we see the first murder between brothers. And Cain is so distraught about what he's done, and so afraid that people will take vengeance on him, that he says, God, if you send me away too, what will protect me? People will commit vengeance. They will seek me out and try to kill me for what I've done to my brother. And so God puts a place of protection around him, marks him, and says, if anyone kills you, they will be avenged seven times over. Then the story goes on, and Cain has kids and grandkids and great-grandchildren, and and we're given this little addendum about two of his great-great-great-grandchildren. And one is that there's a guy named Tubal-Cain, who's the inventor of weapons of war, and his father is a guy named Lamech. And this is what we know about Lamech. This is all that we're told about Lamech in Scripture. Do we have that? This is how he describes himself. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. How much did Jesus say that we're supposed to forgive those who have harmed us? 77 times. It's as if in this parable what Jesus is saying is that from the beginning of time, the way of the world has been to seek vengeance for those who have harmed you. And Lamech is saying, I will get my pound of flesh. I will get everything that is owed against me. I will repay vengeance against people who have injured me 77 times, limitless. And Jesus in this parable is saying, not so in the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of the world. My kingdom is a place where you don't seek vengeance 77 times. You offer forgiveness 77 times. And the, the crisis for us in that space is, is that something that we're willing to do? The, the kingdom crisis moment is, are we willing to forgive and love our enemies to that extent? Or would we rather follow the kingdom of Lamech and, and get our vengeance, hold on to our grudges, seek retribution for people who have wronged us? Jesus is saying there's two kingdoms you can be a part of, but if you want to be a part of my kingdom, then we need to break the cycles of vengeance and hostility and anger and retribution and vengeance. That the way of the kingdom of God is one of forgiveness. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Show mercy as you have been shown mercy. Is that a kingdom that we want to be a part of? And I think it's important to say that that in this parable and in Scripture, there's a sort of caveat that's really important for us to understand because people have taken this teaching and they've abused it in different ways. 
You see, forgiveness does not equal reconciliation in Scripture. A helpful definition for us, if we want to understand what Jesus means when he says forgiveness is this. He says that forgiveness means letting go of the past sins committed against you, not harboring grudges or plotting revenge and moving forward with your life. Reconciliation, on the other hand, requires a proper response of repentance from the offending party to fully restore relationship. Do you get the distinction there? You see, sometimes we talk about forgiveness and and what we hear is that no matter what someone has done to us, no matter how much they've abused us, no matter how much they've mistreated us, that, that we have to continually be in relationship with them. And to forgive them means to continually go into spaces where we are allowing ourselves to be harmed and mistreated and abused. And the church has used this at times to say, women, you have to stay with a violent husband. You just have to keep forgiving them. Or, or people, you have to stay in an abusive relationship. And that's not what Jesus is getting at in this teaching. Forgiveness and repentance are different. He is saying, as far as it goes with you, when people have harmed you, forgive them the wrongs that have committed. Don't seek vengeance against them. But in Scripture, repentance is necessary for reconciliation. And repentance requires changed behavior. And so there's a distinction here for us to understand that Jesus is calling us to limitless forgiveness But he's not saying that you have to stay in situations that are harmful. What he's saying is that as far as it goes with you, don't hold grudges and don't seek vengeance against those who have wronged you. Don't retaliate in the same way. And so to close today, when we think about this idea of forgiveness and the limitless bounds of God's forgiveness for us and the way that he has called us to forgive others, I thought it was appropriate to end in a moment of prayer around two things. To to first, bring ourselves to a place of confession where the things that we are struggling with, the sins that we've committed against God, we can bring to the feet of God and, and experience the grace and forgiveness and cancellation of all debt that he promises to us. That we can bring him the moments like I have with a football that, that remind us of the ways that we've fallen short. I think one thing that happens to us when we talk about the space of of confession is we almost come with a a heaviness or a hesitancy. Like we're not sure that we actually want to like admit that we're wrong or the places that we've fallen short of who God has called us to be. And, And essentially that's what confession is, is recognizing the gap between who we want to be and who we actually are. But confession isn't meant to be entered into with with heaviness. It's not a space where we go to have our shame compounded. It's the space we go to find freedom for the things that we have done wrong. It's the acknowledgement of who God is, good, gracious, and merciful, and an honest assessment of what we've done. And so in a moment, I want to just open it up to space for you to allow the Holy Spirit to search you to bring things to mind that maybe you need to ask God for forgiveness for, not to shame, but to bring freedom and joy and forgiveness of debt. And then I'm going to invite you to pray for others, for those who have hurt you, for those who have wounded you. 
and to practice what this parable teaches, to enter into a space where you say you're willing to forgive them in your heart. Would you pray now? ask God for forgiveness for the sins we've committed, the ways that we've strayed. And now I'll invite you to, to pray for forgiveness for those who have wronged you. make it through life without an accumulation of wounds and hurts. God, from the, the small emotional paper cuts that continue to nag at us to the gaping wounds that refuse to heal. There are people in this room who have been treated unjustly, who have been abused, who have been violated, God, we all carry wounds. I pray that you would give us the strength to forgive where we are called to forgive. God, that you would make our hearts merciful like yours is merciful. God, we remember in forgiving others that they're broken and sinful just like us in need of the same forgiveness that we've been shown. And God, for the people here today who carry around those 
those moments, those images of things that they've done, things that they've, ways that they have hurt or harmed others. God, I pray in that space where people are feeling shame and the weight of guilt, that God, the lavish, abundant mercy that you offer us would become real to us. God, I pray that as Jesus said in another parable, the prodigal son, I pray the words over our church today. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now has been found they began to celebrate. God, for those of us who feel the weight of shame and guilt, may we recognize you as the Father who runs towards us from a long way off. God, may we see you as the good and merciful King who announces the good news that all debt has been forgiven in Jesus' name. May we live from that place and that reality character of the king. May we demonstrate that to our neighbors. And it's in the name of Jesus.